Last week we began our new sermon series talking about how we can encourage one another to live our lives in community together. Uh, I'm basing the series off of a book written by Christine Pohl. Uh, she wrote a book, Living in Community, Four Practices to Help Sustain Us. Uh, the four practices are thanksgiving, hospitality, promise-keeping, and truth-telling. That if we could be a community of people who uh, build one another up in these ways, uh, we can be a community of uh, hospitality and thankfulness and promise-keeping and truth-telling. And when you think about the world at large, is there a group of people that practice these sorts of things that we can trust and rely upon and how that can build true and genuine, uh, genuine community? And so it's my hope that through this series we would encourage one another in this way, that we would build one another up in love, that we would cultivate these sorts of things. So last week we talked about Thanksgiving and living a grateful life and being grateful for what we have and the people in our lives and express gratitude and thanksgiving to God in all that we do. And so really the bottom line is that we should appreciate one another and express that as best as we can. Uh, this week, working with the guys, it was it was hot out, uh, and with Emily and Wendy, uh, they it was hot Friday and Saturday, uh, but it was just a joy to work along with guys and and I uh, on that project, and I appreciate them so much for uh, giving up a couple of days to to do that and be a part of it. And so, building a community is about serving and loving and caring for one another. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to us about being a community of people who are promise makers and promise keepers. You know, somewhere, somewhere there is a wife who is uh, in a marriage that hasn't turned out the way that she hoped it would be. Uh, the slug that she's married isn't all that she uh, thought he was going to be, but for whatever purpose, she remembers the promise she made, and she's talked to God, and she's prayed it through, and she's willing to stick it out because she remembered the promise that she made, and she wants to make the most of her marriage. Somewhere there is a father, a father of a daughter, and the daughter is driving him crazy. Not that daughters have a habit of doing that, not my daughters, but daughters can do that from time to time. And the father, rather than just give up on her, he remembers that moment that he held her in the hospital. And he said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. And that father is honoring his commitment to his daughter to love and care for her. Somewhere there is a minister out serving in some community and he is frustrated he has third degree burnout from a church that hasn't appreciated him and he's ready to call it quits throw in the towel and say you know i can make more money and be more appreciated doing something else that was me just this week but uh no, i'm kidding i'm <laughs> totally kidding uh but somewhere that minister he remembers he remembers his call he remembers God asking him to serve and love his church. And he answered the call, and he was ordained, and he remembers his ordina ordination and the commitments that he made and said, I'm going to serve Christ's church the rest of my life. 
somewhere, yes, somewhere, there are people who are still making commitments, making promises, and keeping them. And it is uh, the message from Lewis Smeads that really struck me in the heart as I was thinking about promise-making and promise-keeping. And he says, yes, there are people out there who are still honoring and making their commitments. And when they do that, when they make promises and they keep them, those people are like God. Not that they are God. They are like God. You see, we serve and we follow and we love a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. All throughout the pages of Scripture, we see God making promises and God fulfilling those promises and honoring them. Way back in the story of Moses and the Exodus story, remember, uh, remember our Bible sort of trivial, uh, not trivial things, but Bible trivia, just what's going on in the book of Exodus. At the onset, the Israelites are in Egypt. And that's not where God said they're going to be. We read Abraham, uh, Abraham's call in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 says, You're, you will be a great nation, and there will be an offspring. And that offspring will be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I don't know about you, but if I were an Israelite, and our people just spent 400 years enslaved in Egypt, it doesn't really feel like God is honoring his commitment, does it? Like, hold on here. Like, shouldn't we, you know, be in palaces? Shouldn't we have all that we should ever want and desire? And so it may have felt like God wasn't going to fulfill his promises. But Moses is out in this field, uh, tending to his flock, and there is the burning bush. And the burning bush calls out to him, and he says, Moses, Moses, come here, let's have a talk. And and Moses is like, okay, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? And he's like, hey, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. And he says, I have a job for you. I have a task for you. Any of you kids, can you tell me what was Moses' job to do? Go ahead. It's not school. You don't have to raise your hand. Just shout it out. What is Moses' job? What does God ask Moses to do? Bingo, Aiden. You get to drive the uh, wagon for VBS. <laughs> uh, you see what happens, kids, when you participate? Yeah. All right. Okay. I don't know what my treats are from here on out, but that one's hard to top. So I'll let you drive my car, maybe. I don't know. So the Israelites, they are in Egypt, and they're enslaved, and God calls out to Moses, and Aiden, you got it exactly right. God says, I am calling you to deliver my people out of Egypt. And Moses is kind of like, well, hold on. How, me? You want me to do that? Like, this is way above my pay grade. Eventually, he's like, okay, I'm on board with this, but what do I say to the people when I go and I start speaking to Pharaoh and I start saying to God's people that you are calling them out of Egypt to go and worship you in the desert? What name do I give you? What, what do I tell the people who, want, <laughs> who have questions? Who do I say you are? And then he, God answers that question, and this, 
this statement that God gives him has sort of befuddled people forever. And it still sort of does. But he says, you tell them, I am who I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. The name of God that God gives him is I am who I am. It's like, oh, geez, thanks for clearing that up. And what what Lewis Smead says, and it's intriguing to me because it, it sort of tracks out, and my goal this morning is to help you see it, is what he's saying is maybe the best translation we have is I am the one who will be there for you. I am who I am could perhaps best be translated as I am the one who will be there for you. And the rest of the story of Exodus is time after time of God showing and proving himself to be true to his name. I am the one who will be there for you. And so Moses, he goes from there and he goes to Egypt and sure enough, God goes with them. And when he is confronted with Pharaoh and his power, God shows up and he shows that he is there with him. And every plague, he shows himself mightier than Pharaoh. When he finally does get the people of God delivered out of Egypt and they pass through the Red Sea, the very moment of passing through the sea itself is evidence that I am the one who will be there for you was right there along with them in the people of God. They get in the wilderness and it's, well, we didn't plan any food. We didn't know we were going to be wandering in the wilderness. We're getting a little hungry. Well, who shows up but I am the one who will be there with you is right there with his people. And he offers them manna from heaven and quail for their meat. When they're searching for water, when they're searching for something, when God is going to deliver them from their enemies, they take the Ark of the Covenant and if they have I am the one who will be there for you with them, Their enemies are vanquished and they are victorious. Over and over and over again, throughout the story of the people of Israel, it will be a story about a God who is there with them and who loves them, who is present as a pillar of, of fire, as a cloud. God would lead and show his presence, that he is a God that is there for his people. There would come times, though, in the story of Israel where they would start to question this promise that started way back with Abraham, this promise that started even before him and the promise given to Noah that he won't wipe out the earth the way he did before. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, but there were moments where it felt like God wasn't keeping his promise. In fact, it felt like I am the one who will be there for you was sometimes absent. And there was a period of time where it felt like maybe God had given up on his promise. And things weren't looking very good. And then suddenly there's this announcement out of Bethlehem. And there's this stir beginning in the small town of Nazareth. And suddenly there is a person who is walking around with the name Emmanuel. God with us. And every step along the way, we will see in Scripture that God is a a God who is there for His people. 
God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And He says, I will be there with you. Every step of the way, God says, I will be there with you. And there will be times where it doesn't feel like it for the Israelites, and there will be times where it doesn't feel like it for us. But the message of Scripture is this incredible story of the one who will be there for you and he's there for us. The parting words of Christ in Matthew 28. He tells us, and surely I will be with you. Kids who went to camp. Yes, Oliver, surely I'll be with you too. The very end of the age, you get $1,000. Later. I'm really setting the bar high here, guys. I don't know what to do next. But God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And he, God sustains us through His promises. You know, think about, think about the world. We're going to go a little dark here for a moment. And maybe this, is, maybe this is controversial. I don't know if it is or not. We'll see what happens. Is it human ingenuity and progress that has sustained the earth? Is it all of our incredible developments and all of our things that we have accomplished, all of the governments, all of the things that man has created? Or is creation sustained by a loving and involved God who is there for us? My instinct thinks that it's a God who is actively and continually fulfilling His promises, who is keeping this whole thing held together. That left to our own devices, how well has mankind operated and functioned in our world today? And the reason why I think it might be controversial is you might, it can go into the hairy subject of global warming and all of these things. And all of these things that we can get fearful of and wonder what's going to happen tomorrow and what's next and all of this. I go way back to Genesis and I, and I hear the promise given to Noah. And it seems like the God that's revealed in the story of Noah's Ark is a God who condemns evil and wickedness and is trying all he can, can to preserve goodness in the world to be a light and reflection of God's glory and splendor. And he's doing something, and he's holding on to that, and he's sustaining it. There is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, and he cares for all of us, and he cares for his creation. You, we, see, um, we see then that God sustains us through his promises. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And I want to propose something to you that maybe you don't think about. That our identity comes from the promises we make and the promises we keep. The way we understand God as a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, we start saying things about Him like, He is faithful. He is our Father. He cares deeply for us. 
We can say these things about God's identity because he has proven over and over again that he's willing to do these things. Right? Does that make sense? God is a promise-making, a promise-keeping God. He has been faithful. He cares deeply for us, so much so that he sent his son to redeem and save us. That's his identity. And we start saying things like he's our sustainer, he's our provider, he is our creator, he is our life. We say these things because he's shown them to be true. So what is it, how would you answer the question of who you are? Who am I? A question that has plagued humankind for a long time, wondering who we are. Today, you might try and answer the question, who am I, by looking at your feelings. How do I feel? And that might start shaping your identity. You might be one that you believe your identity is shaped by what you've accomplished the things that you have done. You might believe that you are, uh, you might be able to answer the question, who am I, and find your identity in what other people say about you. And so we lead a life feeling like our identity is shaped by our feelings, our identity is shaped by our accomplishments, and our identity is shaped by what people say about us. And we see this play out all over the place. What people say about us, we can make our Facebook profiles or whatever that thing is that you're on that's popular today. I'm, I'm still using my MySpace, so um, that was a joke to the ten people that understood it. But, uh, but we might be able to curate a perfect image of what we want people to see about us, and that would shape our identity. Or in the fleeing moments of how we feel about our life, in the fleeing moments of who we think we are by, um, uh, of who we think we are by uh, what we have accomplished, what our feelings are, all of these things, I contend with you that that today I would hope that you would see that you are the culmination of the promises you've made and the promises you keep. I am a husband to Wendy. That is a part of my identity and who I am. And so long as um, she's willing to put up with me, that's how it's going to work, right? The Because uh, I've got to be a joy to live with, I'm sure. But... And so long as we are honoring that commitment, that is who I am. I am my husband to, to Wendy. So long as I honor the commitment that I made to my children when I held them in my arms at the hospital, and I said, I will be your father, and I will care for you, and I will protect you. My identity is shaped by being the father of Oliver, Ellie, and Audrey. My identity is shaped by making a commitment that I will be a follower of Jesus Christ my whole life. It is the culmination of making the promise and keeping it that shapes my identity. It's not how I feel. It's not how I feel in the moment that shapes who I am. 
well, I must be this or I must be that because this is how I feel in the moment. It's not marked by my accomplishments. It's marked by me making and keeping promises that I will love Wendy the rest of my life in sickness and in health. Friends, who are you? What promises are you making and what promises are you keeping? And that's the whole key. Like, we can make a lot of promises, but if we don't keep any of them, you don't shape your identity. In fact, we have the potential of losing our identity when we make promises and we don't ever keep them. And so we will say, I will follow you, Jesus Christ, and you'll be my Lord and Savior, and we make that promise, but then if we have no interest in keeping, no interest in keeping that promise, have we really decided to follow Him? God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, and we have the actual potential of being like God by making promises and keeping them and forming this true and beautiful and good identity. You are the culmination of the promises you make and the promises you keep. And I say this with confidence because I've done numerous funerals of wonderful, amazing people who made promises and kept them. And when you gather with their families and you talk with them and you say, who, who were these people? You know what they say? When families get together to talk about loved ones, they talk about the promises their loved ones made and the promises they kept. And there is always the heart-wrenching moments with families, with people. And what do they talk about in their brokenness and their hurt? But they say to me, they said this, but they did this. They made these promises and they said these things, but they didn't ever really follow through. We have the potential of being a promise-making and a promise-keeping sort of people. And as I look at my life and what I want it to be, I want it to be one where I can be looked at at the end of my life where it says, where you would say of me, he was the husband of Wendy, he was the father of Oliver, Ellie, and Audrey. He was the grandfather of 25 beautiful kids. No, maybe not that many. That's a little, that's a little high. That would be a little hard. Just making sure you're all paying attention. Right? And above all of that, that my identity would be he was a follower of Christ. That he was, a, he was our minister. That he was, he promised himself and promised his church to love them and care for them and put others before himself. What kind of promises are you making and what kind of promises are you keeping? What identity are you making for yourself? What will be said about who you are and what you are doing? We serve a promise-making and a promise-keeping God who is faithful and loving and cares deeply for us. When we wonder who, who we are, 
we must look at the promises we make and the promises that we keep. For we are our promises. And we lose a part of who we are when we no longer keep them. And what we make when we live in community together is we make the same sort of promise that God makes to Moses. Moses at the burning bush says, who do, we, who do we call you? He said, I am the one who will be there for you. When we make promises to each other, when I make a promise to my wife, when I make a promise to my children, I'm saying, I will be there for you. And here's the stuff that makes communities that are worth being a part of. When we get perfect strangers saying to one another, I will be there for you. We make life all about personal freedoms and what we can do with our freedoms and the sort of liberties that we have. We have a hard challenge in front of us. We're asking you, we're asking you to say to people that you may not know very well, people you very well may not like, and say, you know, because we're a part of a church family, I will be there for you. And the beautiful thing is, is if you can get a hundred people to start saying that to each other and keeping that promise, what do you have? But I think a pretty great church to be a part of. And I could uh, preach for another half an hour. I have it in me, I promise. But if we would get that, if we would get that little thing that means a whole lot, that if we would say to each other, I will be there for you, and we start making and keeping that promise, then I think we're, we have something. It's when we no longer make that promise that we start losing the fabric of what unites and draws us together. Because we belong to a God that says, I will be there for you. And now we can start saying to each other, I will be there for my friends and my family and my church family. Something's going on, I'll be there for you. Nothing's going on, I'll be there with you. And for everything in between. I want to close with some encouragements that you and I will experience genuine human community only if we make and keep promises to each other. And so just from a very simple point, uh, it may feel like I just said, okay, you have to say yes to everything. And that would actually be the wrong response. I have over-yesed myself many times. And because I've over-yesed myself, it actually makes, makes it so I can't be there for anyone. And so if we would manage our boundaries and keep, keep the commitments that we do make, hopefully we'll experience more rest and better boundaries, seek support and encouragement in our marriages and meaningful relationships, that we would encourage one another and build one another up in our marriages, that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up our crosses and follow the example of Christ. I'll close with this. Jesus asked a question of his disciples. 
And he said, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they responded, well, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or John the Baptist or other prophets. And he says, you, you guys who I've spent a lot of time with, who've been committed (laughs) to one another, you guys, who do you say I am? Peter chimes in and he says, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You see, Jesus, he made promises and he kept them and he showed himself his true identity. And all along the way, Jesus starts giving these hints about who he really is. Jesus, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the gate for the sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus said, I am the vine. And here's what I believe with all my heart and what I hope you believe with yours. That Jesus was saying in all of those things, I am the one who will be there for you. Do you believe today that Jesus is the one who's there for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus, the one who is there for us. There for us in our sorrow and our joy. There for us when we are far from you to draw us closer. There for us to speak to on our behalf. There for us in our sadness and brokenness and there for us in our greatest joys. God, we love you that your Son is the light of the world, that he is the gate for all to enter, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God, your Son is the one who is there for us. We thank you for him and his Spirit. We ask that you would lead us to be a promise-making and a promise-keeping church, that we would love you and seek you with our whole hearts. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus promises, I am the one who will be there for you the bread of life, your sustenance and strength. Jesus says, I am the one who will be there for you, the lighting of the way into salvation. Jesus says, I am the one who will be there for you to welcome you into the family of believers. Jesus says, I am the one who will be there for you to lead you. Jesus says, I am the one who will be there for you in death and new life. I will be the one who will be there for you to guide you in the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, I will be there for you. Your life is in me, and I am in you. If you would like to respond to life and faith and hope in Jesus, I ask that you would grab me right now, right after church, that you would want to have Jesus there for you in your life, in all that you do. Let's stand and sing.